the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Oh, yes, indeed he, and he's here to say good afternoon to you. Welcome, five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m., here on your uh, basic Thursday edition of Lifeline. And how you doing? Hope you're having a great week so far. We're going to kind of help you coast into Friday, tomorrow, and then I talk to your boss. They're so happy with your performance this week. Let me just tell you right now. Go to work tomorrow, put in your full day. The next two days thereafter, take them both off. Yep, even 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 Mike, my engineer, is thrilled. <laughs> yeah, you work in radio, Mike. There's no such thing as a day off. At any rate, welcome to the program. Lots of territory to cover on today's show. And, you know, one of the things that we try to do every now and then is break down some of the stories of the week, not only their impact on your life, but to try to make sense of them. And, you know, on an ever-increasing basis these days, it becomes more and more difficult to make sense of anything going on in the world of news, but we're going to attempt to do so on today's program. And to help us out, we're joined by author, educator, lawyer, frequent guest on this program down through the years. It's always a delight and an education to have Mr. Joe Murray join us on the program. Joe, good afternoon to you. Craig, it is good to be back. How are you doing, my friend? I, you know what? For a young kid, I'm doing okay and just trying to make <laughs> sense out of this world that we're on and uh, awfully glad that you're along to help us try to make some sense of it today because, boy, there's a lot of strange things going on. So in no particular order, let's get down to cases. One of the, one of the big words on the lips of uh, many of our authorities in national security has been Balloon. No. <laughs> I, I, if I had time, I was going to pull up 99 Luftballons. Remember that big song from back in the yeah. probably the yeah. 70s, I guess, or early 80s, to be sure. I thought that would be appropriate, but I thought, nah, I don't want to push my luck too far. But, you know, I, I, I guess it runs the gambit from... What did the administration know and when did they know it? Why in the case of one balloon that seems to be fairly confident that it was indeed engaged in spying activities that we decide, yeah, let's wait a week or two before we deal with this. And then on the other hand, I understand there was a kid's birthday party. Somebody let a balloon go by accident. And, you know, we're so grateful to know that the, the Air Force released an F-16 fighter and shot it down and and so while the kid is disappointed uh, we can rest safe 
<laughs> so give me give me your sense of all of this. I mean, you know, listen, I, Joe, to kind of, on a serious note, we, we all yeah. know, and if we don't, we should understand yeah. that both sides spy on each other. We have yeah. done this since the first U-2 got shot down years ago, and we had to kind of admit to the Russians, yeah, we're up to no good, but they've been up to no good as well. So it's not any news that we're trying to keep track of what each other is doing. Um, balloons seem to be a little bit old school, but listen, whatever seems to work. I, I just have to wonder, what's your take, not only in terms of the reaction and or delayed reaction by the administration on the big balloon, and then to see we've shot down three more that turn out to be probably a whole bunch to do about nothing. Well, you see, President Biden had sent President G uh, for a birthday gift, you know, Jules Verne, uh, around the world in 80 days. And he was just trying to, you know, figure it out. But <laughs> all kidding aside, all kidding aside, look, I mean, here's what I think is going on. I think China is sending a message. Uh, I don't agree with Marco Rubio a lot, but I do think that because it was old school, because it was in a way that was so obvious, uh, I think it was kind of sending a, a shot across the bow. And, and it's not that they are going to come and attack us. I don't think that's it. What I think is likely going to happen in the next anywhere from 12 to 16 months is that you're going to see China begin to move on Taiwan. Mm -hmm. I think something it's been, been wanting to do for quite some time. And I do think these missions were going to be to see, okay, if the United States decides to come in and aid on the, on the behalf of the Taiwanese, then we have the intel of where we need to worry and what we can do. So I think it was provocative. I think it was something that was done not to inst institute a war with us and China, but I think China was sending a message and, and I think also testing our resolve. Uh, and I get what the Biden administration is saying. That first spy balloon, it was big. Uh, you know, it, it was a it, it was a big balloon, and it could have caused some debris. But and, and not for any of my friends. I've been to Montana. I love Montana. It's a, it's a gorgeous place. But there's not a lot of people there. You could have picked a spot where it would have not been completely causing a threat to life and limb uh, but instead you wait till it goes over the bloody ocean where you can't get all the materials and all the items in this balloon I, there's a lot of missteps here and I think what it's showing the American people is that when it comes to foreign policy we're, we're kind of going back to the days where I think Biden's only foreign policy experience is maybe a breakfast at IHOP so, uh, and, and, and I think that's problematic because China is an adversarial nation. Now, Trump was very much unconventional, and he might have caused a lot of issues with China. But I think any president from this way forward, this moment forward, has to know that China is not an ally, and it's not somebody that's indifferent. It is an adversarial nation that is wanting to challenge us on the global stage. And it's already doing it in Africa, where it's buying up a lot of land and minerals. It's doing it in the Middle East, and it's doing it in Southeast Asia. And it's now apparently brazen enough to send spy balloons basically floating across the continental United States. So, so you, you see this literally as, not to not to uh, try to go for a pun here, but you see this literally yeah. as them floating a trial balloon to yeah. see what the reaction would be. I mean, I, you know, a couple of points. Number one, not knowing what kind of payload it had, it was probably 
smarter to wait till it was out over the ocean than to do it over U.S. land, because had it had somewhat of a dangerous payload, then there would have been another set of even more severe consequences for the administration to deal with. Um, The fact that they let it float around as long as it did, uh, yeah, that's 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 still troubling. but but the broader thing here, and getting to the heart of your point, uh, I have to wonder, you know, China testing our resolve, there have been several observers that have, from a, from a, um, a relationship between Taiwan and China, wondered how long it would take for China to get more serious about the annexation of Taiwan. And, you know, not that I'm advocating that the United States ought to be pulled into another uh, third-party war in the case of uh, Russia and the Ukraine. But, you know, when when Russia sees that, well, it can do excursions into Georgia and nobody does anything about it, it can outright annex Crimea and nobody says a word. It can march, you know, attempt to march into Kiev and engage in now a year-long bloody war against Ukraine, and other than sending along, you know, a few Scud missiles and maybe a couple of old worn-out tanks, nobody does much of anything. You've got to wonder what they're thinking in Beijing, watching all of this, thinking, well, gee, if Putin can get away with this, uh, why can't we sort of ratchet up the timetable in annexing Taiwan because after all they claimed it as their own for my goodness probably the last 30 or 40 years and and you just have to wonder whether or not there's that sense of okay well the ones that have the greatest wherewithal to do anything is the United States and if they won't act then likely nobody will act and we'll be able to basically do whatever we want. And I think that's the point. And and it, it, and I'm not saying this by any means giving China a green light, not that they're listening to me, but if we're going to talk about claims, I think China's claim on Taiwan is a lot more tenable than uh, Russia's claim on Ukraine. So, yeah, I mean, I, this is not the China of the 1990s. This is a China that has grown up and is very mature, very sophisticated, very wealthy, thanks to a lot, to a lot of the trade deals that we gave them in the 1990s. Uh, so, yeah, they're ready. They are not a, a subordinate anymore. They are a co-equal. And, and it also, it, it kind of has a, a resemblance of when the British Empire was fading and we were rising. It, it finally became the point where we became so powerful that even though we were on somewhat friendly terms with the Brits, we had over, over, overshadowed them. And our policies have been leading into a gradual decline, not only uh, militarily, but economically and socially and culturally. And the Chinese, they're very much confident in who they are. They are very much confident in their culture, and they're very much confident in their cause. Can we say that about the United States right now? We don't know who we are as a people. We're not confident in our cause. We're very divided. We, we can't even agree on what's right or wrong. We can't even agree, agree on what's a woman. So where China is in a stage where it is ready to flex its muscle, we're in a stage where we're in somewhat of a period of decline. Does that mean we're going to, to kind of fall off the ledge and be over and done with? Not by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think, Craig, the next 10 to 15 years in this country 
are going to basically set the stage for the next century. Well, I think you're right. I think the other issue at hand here, too, that we need to be mindful of, and that is that we have, unfortunately, in recent years, and a lot of this goes back to, you know, entanglements in Vietnam that were largely pretty useless. Uh, You know, even our tenure in North Korea, okay, it prevented the communists from going anywhere further than the 38th parallel, but also set up nothing but misery for the people of the North for the last 50, 60-something years. But, you know, I'm I'm wondering if part of the bigger issue here is that um, countries like China, Russia, too, see us as having a lot more bark than we have actual bite. And I looked at this and thought to myself, you know, if if we really wanted to send a message to Beijing, rather than shooting down their balloon and then shooting down allegedly three others that apparently are, are no threat at all, wouldn't it have been far more effective? It would have been it would have taken a tremendous amount of boldness, even even further than Trump pushing the idea of increasing <clears throat> import taxes, which at the end of the day really doesn't punish Chinese, it punishes American consumers, but yeah. wouldn't it have been far more effective, just let me float this idea, see what you think, if Washington, D.C. said to Beijing, okay, we found we found your spy satellite, here's what's, or your, your spy balloon, here's what's going to happen. The next 500 ships that come to American waters, east or west, are going to be turned back. They can take the goods right back to Shanghai, right back to Beijing, where they started from. Yeah. Now let's see if a little bit of significant financial pain will get your attention, because the one thing of all that might be said in our tenuous relationship with Beijing, the one thing that can can be said is an absolute truism, at least for the time being, and that is that they rely upon us for dollars. And if we deny them dollars, I think we'll get their attention. And that's the one thing that we've not done. I looked at it and thought, you know what, let's hit them where, where their pocket is, and, and maybe they'll pay attention. No, you're right. That's the one thing that every American president, minus Trump, and I know he he went tariff route, but think about it. Every American president has refused to, to hit China when it comes to economics. I mean, even when they were getting MFN back in 2000, we refused to say, okay, if we're going to give you MFN, our most favorite nation status, mm-hmm. we're going to demand that you stop persecuting Christians. We're going to demand that you stop forcing abortions. We had totally divorced our economic policy from our foreign policy, and it's been a colossal mistake. And I think you're right. If we were to turn around and tell China that, yep, the store is closed, go sell your stuff elsewhere, where are they going to go? I mean, for lack of of a better thing, we are still the biggest marketplace in the world. This is where people buy stuff. You know, the folks out there in China on the rice farms, they're not buying these these highfalutin technological gadgets that are being created in the plants. The Americans are buying this. And you're right. We've got to keep hitting China in the pocketbook because that is, at this point in our history, the only leverage we have. And I know that there's going to be multinational corporations like Apple that will say, oh, what you'll do to us, you're going to shut off our pipeline of new Apple iPhones coming into the country. You can't possibly do that. But, you know, at at some point there needs to be a sense of the greater good. And I realize that this is maybe a a oversimplistic solution to an extremely complicated problem. 
problem. But, you know, in the adage of, of the customer is always right, since we're their number one customer, if the customer just occasionally barked and said, yeah, no, we're not going to do that, you have to wonder how quickly yeah. the level of customer service might improve when they realize that they're going to be directly impacted financially. And that's the one thing that Beijing can't tolerate. If you've just joined us, we're visiting today with author, educator, and lawyer Joe Murray. It's a look at the top stories of the week and their impact on your life. When we come back, we'll move from floating uh, trial balloons to uh, looking at more severe issues, such as what appears to be the ongoing inability of this nation to come to grips with a level of violence that seems to now be just baked in to American culture. That and more as Lifeline with Mr. Joe Murray continues here on KFAX. Balloons, and uh, so far the administration has only shot four down. So, by my math, 95 to go. Welcome back to the conversation. Thank you, Mr. Mike, for uh, <laughs> entertaining all of us. We are visiting today with not, not only some insights, but entertainment as well. Author, educator, and lawyer Joe Murray. A look at the top stories of the week and their impact on your life. And, uh, Joe, one of the big issues, and that we're going to kind of head into a, a serious turn here now, is is what appears to be an ongoing, well, crisis, I think, is, is an appropriate word, but, but I have to wonder if it also was a product of the direction of our overall culture. You know, uh, they say that, you know, the Smith & Wesson is the gun that won the West, and, and, and certainly weapons and uh, their enshrinement uh, from an ownership standpoint in the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution has been a part of, of all of American history. And I don't know that anybody reasonable would argue that, that that in any appreciable way needs to change, per se. But I think what does need to change is, well, for example, the, the, the most recent killing um, where Michigan State police are now reporting that, yeah, apparently the shooter there not only had purchased the two weapons and the ammo legally, but also had a history of mental health problems and on and on the list goes. And whether we're talking about shootings taking place at mushroom farms in Half Moon Bay or at concerts in Las Vegas or at schools called Columbine or in Texas, it just seems as if every time we turn around, there's another mass shooting, and I've done a little bit of research, you can't find any country on the planet that comes anywhere close to not only the level of fascination that we apparently have with weapons in the United States, but also the amount of, of sheer destruction that they cause in lives. Now, the argument will go, these stories will run. Conservatives and gun owners will say, watch out, they're going to use this as an excuse to shut down the Second Amendment and take away your Second Amendment rights. Meanwhile, the other side will say, we need more regulations, more controls, more laws, when seemingly even the ones already on the books are apparently not working. 
so I guess the big question is, we're going to put this 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 one to you and and kind of kind of see your your insights, your thoughts on it. But what do we do? Do we just sit back and say, yeah, this is a part of of just American culture these days, and get used to the fact that you may send your kids to school and they may or may not come back at the end of the school day in a body bag, or you may innocently take your daughter going shopping at the local mall. You may or may not be killed in the process. It's just a part of American life. I mean, do we do we are we being forced to have to embrace this? And 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 if the answer is no, that's a ridiculous thought, Craig. Then I guess the big the big question that I have to ask that I've yet to hear a cohesive answer on, and that is, then what's the solution to this? Well, and I think I think what we have to do when looking at the gun issue, especially the mass shooting, is one of the, the trends that I see that that connect these these horrible incidents besides the gun itself is the role that the pharmaceutical companies have played in this with certain medications that are that are often prescribed to the people that often go on these sprees, especially the antidepressants. I think this is an issue that's unique to America for a couple of reasons. I think our our independence and our resilience, which has led to a gun culture, which I'm not saying is right or wrong, but I think it's in our history and it's in our DNA that we, we think that we take care of ourselves, so therefore we can defend ourselves. But I often think that there is a now a culture of death. Pope uh, John Paul wrote about this back in the late 80s, early 90s, that we seem to glorify death and we've we've seemed to embrace a culture that, that has that has grown to tolerate this. I mean, if you look at what's on the television, if you look at what's on the games, and I know it's so cliche and people are like, well, that doesn't do anything, but it does. It desensitizes people. And then when you desensitize people to violence and you create a disconnect where you think it's okay to kill people on a video game because you don't see them as people. And we live in a world where virtual reality is now a norm. And then you combine that with these, these psychopath, uh, these, these psycho-induced drugs and these, and these antidepressants that will help further cloud the, the line between virtual and real. And then you add the ability to add weapons. I think you have a combustible situation. Uh, and, and what I would say, Craig, if we look at the rise of these shootings, this didn't happen in the 1940s, in the 1950s, in the 1960s, in the 1970s, it started to. But you can begin to track the rise in, in mass shootings with the ease and the and the prescription of some of these drugs. Now, again, I'm not saying it's all the drugs, I'm not saying it's all the guns, and I'm not saying it's just the video games, but you have to ask yourself, when you start to put these things together, and you see how we start to, to dehumanize ourselves. I think that's an issue. I grew up on Pong. That's the game I played. It was those two things hitting the ball back and forth. And when I look at the video games today where you can just gun people down and laugh about it, in a world where we're blending what's real and what's not and you're adding drugs and the ease of weapons, how do you not see that getting into the mind of a disturbed person and and sort of encouraging such behavior. Well, so I think this is an issue that we have to attract uh, attack on many fronts. So so it's really multifaceted and and I'm glad you've made that point because you know number one in no particular order uh, first yeah. off let, let's talk about the the drugs. Um you know 
we had one of the recent shootings and the father was interviewed and he said, well, you know, my son recently lost his mother. He's been extremely distraught and getting worse and worse. So and I hear things like that. And I think to myself, isn't it too bad that there wasn't somebody around this man that could have provided some encouragement and support and 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 the kind of emotional uh, undergirding that was necessary? You know, the, the loss, uh, particularly of a parent, can be traumatizing and if you don't have the kind of skills necessary or or the the sense of, of mental health and well-being and a support system that can can come alongside you to help you work your way through the feelings and the frustration and all of that yeah you know unchecked of course people can head in in a very dark direction uh, yeah. so that that's one issue then and you and I've talked about this in the past yeah. so, some of these drugs that are being produced uh, there was one here not long ago I would say within the last decade that not long after it was released and touted as the miracle drug that will help people be released from the uh, the throes of depression shortly thereafter they had to start releasing the warnings as it got into you know more widespread use that oh by the way one of the side effects may be suicidal thoughts Mm -hmm. (laughs) i thought at the time wait a minute i only started with depression and by the time i'm done taking the medication (laughs) i'm now suicidal something's wrong here but the cure is worse than the illness absolutely (laughs) but 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 did the fda come in and say hang on a minute guys no 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 this thing needs to come off the market immediately. No, all they do is they stick a warning label on the side of the box, and, and hopefully the doctor will remind you that once you've taken a regimen for a while, if you start thinking about ending your life, you may want to give me a call. I mean, yeah. talk about pharmaceutical companies having their way, and at the expense of American lives, it's horrifying. But the bigger thing I want to point to, I'm going to tease this, then we're going to take a break because I don't want to interrupt your answer. You mentioned about, this will date me, you know, you, you grew up on Pong. Yeah, for me, the video game was Etch-A-Sketch, okay? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right. that, that, that'll, that'll set a little perspective here for you. But I have been railing on this program in particular for probably 30 plus years now. Why is it that we allow the level of violence to be so prevalent, film, television, online, video games. I I had a fairly high-ranking member of the U.S. military, an an Air Force officer. We we were having some discussion about the military, and and one of the things that's always fascinated me is, you know, those that are flying these planes, that they're going, you know, so many Gs and and what have you. And uh, he made the comment that I thought was very telling. He said, you know, we're we're designing the cockpits uh, of, of not only fighter planes, but even weapons control to look more and more like video games. Simply because young people are so accustomed to engaging at that level and the joysticks and the controls with their with their thumbs and what have you, they've become so adept at that that we figure they're already pre-trained. All we need to do is take them out of the the animated environment, put them into the real environment. And, you know, instead of pressing buttons on the controller that uh, that leads to you getting, you know, getting points when you get kills. Well, there's actual real bullets that are being fired. And they found that that is the most effective way 
to, in order to, to get the highest degree of accuracy of young men and women that are joining the military because they've had all those years of experience sitting in front of the TV set with their Wii or their PlayStation mm-hmm. 5 or what have you. And I thought how, how telling that is. But it goes to the deeper issue, and I want to have you unpack this for us in a moment, and that is this. There was a time in this country we had the Hayes Code, That was Mm -hmm. largely a joint effort of the Roman Catholic Film Office, the Protestant Film Office, that set certain community standards that said, you know, there's certain extremes to which we just won't go. And in the 1960s, that was completely disassembled. And by the time we got into the 70s and 80s, the wheels had come off because there were no restrictions whatsoever. It could be as bloody and gory as the audience would tolerate. And what we find over time is, did the audience push back? No, the audience didn't push back. In fact, if anything, the audience said, give me more, take it deeper, go darker. And so Hollywood producers, video game producers, television producers have said, well, this is what the public wants. Let's give it to them. And I think what we've done over now probably nearly three generations is we have developed a culture that has been so desensitized to the realities of war and death and maiming and destruction that more often than not, young people today see it more as a video game experience as opposed to real life with real consequences. And you just have to look at this. And again, I know some people are going to say, Roberts, you have really lost it now that if you think the movie of the week is responsible for mass shootings, but I'm going to say to you this. If we understand that television and computers can be such tremendous teaching tools, why do we think that somehow they're not capable in an entertaining fashion of teaching us lessons, albeit very dangerous ones, but teaching us lessons nevertheless? I think anybody who thinks that, that, that the influence of media is not impacting the morals and the psyche of young people today, then if you want to argue somebody's lost their mind, yes, yeah, somebody's lost their mind, I think, but I don't think it's me. We're going to come back and get some further insights on this topic. Joe Murray with us today, author educator and lawyer a timeout back with more as lifeline continues and now back to lifeline with craig roberts all right we're back with author educator and lawyer joe murray we're talking about many of the key events of the week and their impact on our collective lives and certainly the issue of mass shootings even as we saw a string of three inside of barely a week here in California back in uh, late January, early February, and yet another one now uh, back in Michigan, and it just seems to continue on and on and on. And, and typically the response, as Joe Murray has suggested, is is fairly one-dimensional. It's very uh, myopic that it's either more gun laws, we don't want more gun laws, be careful of our Second Amendment right, but this is a far more layered and complex issue. And, and Joe, I want to have you speak to the issue of of entertainment and the influence that it has. You know, as I mentioned before the break, the um, the Hayes Code, which I realize many studios didn't like, and today we look back on it and laugh that why are they sleeping in separate beds? They're husband and wife. <laughs> and, 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 I, and, I, and I get that, but I also get the fact that it helped to maintain a, a particular community standard to the point where the Hayes Code even said, you can have gun battles, you can have fights uh, between the good 
good guys and the bad guys just don't show any blood on the screen. And in the end, in the end, there needs to be some kind of a positive lesson that teaches young people that crime does not pay or that there are consequences for violent or or illegal behavior. There was always some kind of a, a takeaway that had a positive spin to it. That's all been disbanded now. And here we sit 40 years after the the end of the Hayes Code, maybe a little longer than that. And are we reaping the rewards? And and if so, what do we do? Does this require government intervention? Does this require the industry to start becoming more responsible? What do you think? Well, you know, I remember growing up, you know, growing up Catholic, and I would, I would, even if a commercial for The Exorcist came on, I'd run out of that room faster than God made apples. I was not getting anywhere near that movie. I was not going anywhere near that movie. But, you know, the sense today... You know, I teach a lot about the Reformation, and, and, and a component of the Reformation is that degree of censorship. When do you try to censor, and when do you not? Because that material is always out there, and it's always accessible. It's whether it's pornography or whether it's violence. There's always going to be a black market for it. But I guess the issue becomes this, Craig, and this is where the Hayes Code got it right and where we got it wrong. It's what do we tolerate as a society, because we deserve what we tolerate. And in this sense, we laughed at the Hayes Code. And it, it, yeah, it was a little cheesy that you didn't see blood on the gunfights and that you had a moral to the story. But look at the generation of kids that were raised. Now, were they perfect? No, but they had a good moral compass, a, a moral center. Now these kids are raised and these movies are just so so far graphic. I mean, I remember watching Hitchcock and leaving a little to the imagination, and 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 it would to me it would be even more suspenseful when you would have when you'd have somebody pop out of a shadow or something like that. I didn't need the blood and the gore, but I don't know how we stuff this genie back in the bottle, and and it's kind of the situation when they tell a teacher that starts a class, they say, look, make sure that you're strict on the front end because it's a lot easier to let up on the gas than it is to put on the brake. The problem is we let up so much on the gas that we've allowed this to become part of our cultural identity, which is why we have the violence we have. Uh, it, 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 it's, it, it's ingrained. I mean, in our music, in everything we do, there's a degree of violence, and, and we can't shake it. And you're right. It's why people rubberneck on an accident. You know, everybody stops and looks what's going on because human nature has fallen in general and we have that temptation to look and the Hayes code and and other things were there to help protect us and what we did is we took our protection away and now this is what we have we've eliminated the guardrails and and you know when you when you're raised in such a fashion that you have a sense of right and wrong and you're able to emotionally, spiritually, mentally delineate. I'm not suggesting that you knock yourself out and watch all the blood and gore you want, but but at least there's a better chance that you might understand the dividing line between what is Hollywood makeup and the real deal. But when you take away all of those guardrails, and listen, I, I I'm I'm reminded of Philippians four, and it and it and it bears mentioning to this juncture. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
Now, where should we concentrate and put our minds, on blood and gore or on positive things? And, you know, sadly, young people take a steady diet. Sadly, there is more of a sense of uh, what used to be back in my day. The TV set was raising the kids. Now I guess it's, you know, it's uh, Facebook and TikTok doing that. But if, if, if children don't have any kind of a foundation to begin with, and then they're fed the steady diet, and, you know, between sex as part of Madison Avenue and, and the sales pitch all around us, and then... Every example, and we wonder, you know, the, the kids kids go to school, bring a gun. They don't like the teacher. They they fire the gun at the teacher yeah. after they have been taught in film, video, online, that if you have a dispute, if you have a resolution, the, the way you resolve such matters is not through dialogue. It's not through self-sacrifice. It's not turning the other cheek. It's grabbing a weapon and extracting revenge. This is how we've trained up a child. And then when a child follows in the direction that we've trained them, we wonder what's happened. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we, you know, my grandmother always said, be careful what you ask for, because sometimes you just get it. And we ask for we ask for unfettered freedom and unfettered uh, uh, no restrictions. And we got it. I mean, we got it. Stuff that would be even unconscionable just a few years ago. It seems that we're on a, such a steady, rapid rate of decline that I'm fearful what's going to be in the next 10 years. And, and there's really no mechanism right now to stop it. It's why you see so many people pulling their kids out of schools, trying to basically become subcultures uh, of, of the main culture we have now. It used to be, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, you had the main moral Christian, Judeo-Christian culture that was running the show, and you had the subculture of what we see, the main culture today. It's, the roles have reversed now. Now you're going to see little subcultures of the Judeo-Christian ethics kind of isolate where the main culture is is, is, is kind of taken over. Yeah, and we wonder and why everybody's running off to go live in, you know, uh, Idaho or Utah or what have you, because they, they think, well, the only way we're going to be able to protect our family is to kind of create a little enclave or a compound and isolate ourselves from the rest of the world. Of course, the downside of that consequence is, okay, I, I can see some people saying, hey, we're just so fed up, we're going to take our kids out of school, we're moving to a remote area, we're going to homeschool them, and we're going to separate ourselves from the general population as much as we possibly can. Okay, but then what happens to the whole notion of being salt and light and engaging mm -hmm. others and sharing our right. faith and going into all the world? I mean, the, the mandate to go into all the world and preach the gospel kind of gets a, a, a bit of a, a hampering, bit, bit of an obstacle if you're not willing to go out into all the world because you're so terrified of the world that uh, that's around us. And, and that's the rub, right? When you move into retreat mode, you've surrendered not only the this world, but you've kind of surrendered the next world. So you got to be out there preaching that message, even in the darkest of times. You got to be out there being, as you said, that light. And if you're not, then you have surrendered to the darkness. And and that's kind of where. And I get that's what people feel right now because you look at what's going on and what's right is wrong and what's wrong is right. And and it's kind of like living in bizarro world. But the only way that you can keep your sanity is to to keep moving forward and to keep speaking because I do believe that there are more people out there that want to hear it and that believe it 
but right now they just are scared. And if they see the Christians retreating, then what message does that send to the people who might be receptive of that message? Well, not only that, but we also then fail miserably in the role of being salt, that preservative. And, yeah. I, and I have to say, and I, and I know I'm going to take a little flack for this, but, uh, you know, I think part of how we are here is because we had failed at the job a long time ago. We were either MIA or maybe we had retreated earlier or we thought, oh, it can't be all that bad. But, you know, a little leaven leaveneth the whole loaf, right? And I, and I think yep. the challenge we face now, Joe, is if we recognize these issues and recognize that there is no simplistic answer, that the, that the liberals are not going to be any more effective at shutting down uh, mass gun violence by, you know, wiping out the Second Amendment or putting all the rules and regulations you want, well, you know, you put them in in place, but if you don't enforce them, they're absolutely useless. Then there's other little other little minor detail that most criminals don't follow the rules in the first place, so that's kind of pointless. To the yeah. other side that it wants to be defending of the Second Amendment to the nth degree, completely failing to acknowledge the danger that's all about us and and seeking you know largely simplistic answers to what is a very complicated issue that gets into so many layers of of the greater society at large and and sort of the mindset the american mindset um that this this is going to be if we have any intention of stemming the tide of this kind of violence it seems to me that it's going to really require a multi-year multi-faceted multi-generational multicultural related effort to do so because if we don't all come together and agree that something needs to be done then we're just going to continue to where we've been at and that is heading down the same road of death and destruction yeah, and, and that is right. And there has to be a change because I do believe, and if I and I many people might think I'm naive and I'm I'm off my rocker, but I do believe that in our heart we are still a good country. We are still a good people. We still have that, as Reagan would say, that shining light upon a hill. It's just been dimmed, and we need a reset. We need a reset, and I'm not just talking about politics. I mean, we have become so bitter, so divisive. I mean, not only among Republican, Democrat, but even among the church itself, we, we have begun to tear each other apart. And we have to we have to put that, that worldly temptation behind us. And we have to put, as you said, your eyes on the greater prize, which is what our greater mission is. And that's not necessarily of this world. And, and when we realize that, Little by little, we can make strides, and that's what it's going to be. We're not going to rebuild Rome in a day, but, you know, and I do believe this, and I, and I think we need to be very, very gracious for our brothers and sisters in Africa and Latin America, but as Western civilization faces these major challenges that we're facing now, and we see the, the hallmarks of Western civilization start to decay, we need, need to understand that the church, the heartbeat of the church is now coming from Africa and Latin America. So we need to support these folks because there is a time when the West very well may decay. And if we're going to bring that Christian message and let that keep being a, a, a sign of hope for the world, it is going to be coming from the church in Africa and Latin America. Well, and I, you know, in, in, in a... In a 
Odd way? I, I fear that you're right. I, I say odd only in the sense that for so long we've kind of held ourselves up as, as Americans as, as that sh- city on the shining hill and, yeah. and uniquely called out. And American exceptionalism. And, you know, I, I think of, of the observations of de Tocqueville, you know, that America's yeah. greatness was found, uh, you know, not necessarily in her in her, her halls of justice or in her constitution or in um, the, the um, places of political power, but rather in her pulpits and in her churches and um, sadly in a little over a century and and so we have uh, we have veered very far from those moorings and and the other thing and we can save an in-depth conversation on this for our next visit but it would seem to me too talking about overly simplistic solutions for um, very complicated problems and that is the notion that well we look to our political leaders for an answer and let let's if we if we if we can't figure out how to get ourselves out of this this quicksand that we've suddenly gotten our foot caught in maybe we can find a political leader that will come along and provide some answers and i i don't know that that's necessarily the solution either i mean it'd be great if we really had a knight in shining armor i i know some think we've been close to that, but you know, at the end of the day, um, governing a nation politically is one thing. Changing the heart of a nation is something entirely different. Amen. And you know, sadly, I think more and more we've looked to individuals to extract change. When what's really at the core of what what is troubling our nation in all of these issues is really a matter of the heart, isn't it? It is. And that's what people don't understand. Laws will not change what is written on the heart. What, what your, your heart is not going to be moved whether or not a law is changed. What's going to move your heart is action. What's going to move your heart is witness. And, and you can't just get elected and, and think you're going to pass a law and think that the whole nation is going to cooperate. If you do not get the heart to align with the mind, you're going to still be pulling, running against each other. And, and, and as much as we like to put and attach certain personalities and certain somewhat heroics to political candidates, and both sides do it, we have to recognize that these two are just men and maybe one day women who are leading this, they too are fallible and until we lead by our own example and we follow our own hearts and we move people with our actions, not our words, because remember that's all the law is, is words you're not going to go very far so at the end, is the real agent of change here? And I know some people say, well, the agent of change is going to be candidate X who will take over in Sacramento or Washington, D.C., whatever whatever the state house du jour may be. Is it rather instead of looking for the answer in Washington or in Sacramento, is the answer instead really in the church? It's in the church, and I'm going to tell you it's in the schools. I mean, because in the schools, what you have to understand in this country, you give your children over to the public school system for eight hours a day for 180 days a year. So what is being taught in those schoolhouses is going to be a direct impact on what the next generations grow up to believe. Mm. So even if we are working in the church and even if we are working in the state house, whatever is being taught and whatever these children are being exposed to that's going to set the tone because by the time they reach 18, they have formulated their moral compass. They have formulated their worldview. And you and I both know once you get that, it's very hard to change. Unless you have a road to Damascus experience, 
what you believe early on, and now you're going to evolve, but you, your worldview doesn't change that dramatically as you grow. Well, and, and, to, and directly to your point, we talked earlier about the balance of power between countries like China and the United States. Now, what you're talking about is essentially the balance of influence. And yeah. we're foolhardy if we think we can send a kid to school 40, 50 hours a week, but then pray with them one time a week for 10 minutes and, yep. uh, and and make them go to Sunday school for an hour. And we think that somehow that hour and 15 minutes is going to, in some fa- form or fashion, compensate or balance out the hundreds of hours that they are exposed to everything else. And that's the rub. And, and honestly, you know, when I joined the fight, when I was working with the American Family Association back in 2000, we thought the culture war would be fought and won in the courts. And while we were fighting in the courts, and actually in your great city, as we were talking about marriage equality and all that, we were fighting all that. The funny thing is, folks had already set up shop in the schools. Yeah. So even though we were arguing what we did there were kids that were being taught that everything was okay. So by the time that those kids graduated, what we did was useless. Uh, It was absolutely useless because now these kids have grown up with the idea that what they view as right is right, and now they're going to take that, and they're going to take that to the polls. They're going to take that to their jobs. They're going to take that to their positions of influence. And now we have complete generations of children that are now what would be once the counterculture. They're the main culture. It is a post-Western culture. So you're right. We can't combat that with one hour of church and an hour of Sunday school. No, it's just too powerful. It is too powerful, and I think the other the other issue, and it's a good note to end on, and that is the understanding that um, we already are facing multi generations that have come under this 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 mm-hmm. dynamically opposed uh, viewpoint of of life and liberty and faith, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's not even a matter of saying, well, let's do everything we can right now to save the kids today, which is all all very important. But be mindful that many of the decision makers who have been influenced by all of this, they're already in the state house or they're already they're in the White there. House. They're already in the process of influencing and governing and have been for years. And and so as much as it's not going to be a simple solution to deal with the, the issue of mass shootings in America, it's also not going to be a matter of a simple solution to reverse the or stem the tide of, of, of the impact of what's happened in education. And that's the point. I mean, let's just assume, hypothetically, we were to take over the education system today. If we're being realistic, it would be another, maybe if we could start with first and second grade, but it would be about 10 years before the fruits of that victory would be found. That's right. And I so mean, it, uh, I think the message, Joe, hard. you're right. And, and the message, Joe, ultimately to, to listeners right now is we got to get moving now. Because time is of the essence. Joe wrote a book called Take Back Education that uh, deals with many of the issues here toward the end of our conversation in this hour that we've discussed. You want to check it out? You can find it online at Amazon.com. Our thanks to Joe Murray, author, educator, and lawyer, for being with us on that segment of Lifeline. Joe, always a delight and an education to visit with you. We look forward to our next visit. Six o'clock from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.